Lord, we pray that you are drawing people to your church and that even before Lance and Sarah knew that they were going there, even before years ago they went there, that you were already planning this day and planning this beginnings of a new people. Lord, we pray that it will be a spirit-built people with Christ at the center of their gospel, with the word fueling it, and to be driven by faith. Thankful for the part that we have to play with this family and this work in Teopisca. Pray that whatever role that we need to have or continue to have, that we will be faithful in that as Lance and Sarah serve down there. Lord, also we want to pray for Steve Alexander. Obeying your word that we should pray for local officials and those in authority. We just pray for Steve and his for his family. Pray for his marriage and his parenting. Pray that all of that will be fueled by worship. If he doesn't know you in a saving relationship, we pray that he will come into a knowledge of you and faith uh, in the person and work of Christ that will give him fellowship with you, insight into your word, an indwelling Holy Spirit that will guide him as husband and father, and then thirdly, as city manager. Pray that that will affect all of us in a way that will bring glory to you and further the kingdom in our context. Lord, we love you and just uh, so thankful for this word that you have for us today, this journey that we're going on. I pray that we can see a loving and graceful God from the very beginning, not just post-Bethlehem, but a loving and graceful God from let there be light. Lord, I pray too that we can see a moving and active faith from the very beginning so that we can understand that faith, if true, now moves and acts and engages and does and has lots of verbs. I pray that in so doing this morning that we will have an attentiveness to the Hebrews' warnings that will help us appreciate what is actually being said there, that they will have potency yet again. Pray for this work by the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2 has been our uh, most recent journey. We've been in the book of Hebrews the last few weeks, a couple months, a few months, I don't know at this point. Last week we engaged just verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 2. I kind of gave you a big picture landscape of what's going on there. The whole first chapter of Hebrews is really, in a lot of ways, um, providing exposition about who Jesus is. It's exposing who he is and what he's done. And then in chapter 2, it's almost like he looks up from his sermon that he's writing out, this exposition, he looks up with some exhortation where he's looking directly at his people and saying, here's what you are to do with this now, or here's how you are to respond to what I've just exposed about who Christ is. So last week, we just engaged the first verse that really, if you look at it and you understand it, if you were here last week, you can totally appreciate this. If you weren't, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. There is a stiff warning in this verse. Therefore, because of who Christ is, that therefore points backwards, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, that being the gospel and person and work and word and being of Christ, lest we drift away from it. 
We considered that last phrase last week. That's not just like you're drifting on a little lake and you get kind of away from the seashore. The image there is that you miss the harbor, safe harbor in the storm. The the image is that you're going to be carried adrift beyond safe harbor into shoals or reefs or death. For some of you who've whitewater rafted before, the image would be you've gone through your whitewater rafting trip and you have a takeout point that you want to make sure that you catch because if you miss it, there's a waterfall downstream, a serious one. That's the imagery here. Pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. And now he continues his argument. The word for points forward. Therefore, points backward, what I've said about Christ. And now he's continuing his argument four points forward. He says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's as far as I'm going to go this morning. Since the message declared by angels, I'll deal with next week, the angels part of it, proved to be reliable, every transgression... Every disobedience received a just retribution. How in the wide world of sports do we think we're going to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In order to understand this, in order to understand where I'm taking you today, I want to unpack just a little bit of this passage. In some ways, I've done it already. But I want to unpack a little bit to where you understand why we're going on this journey. I'm really going to unpack it next week. But for now, let me summarize the argument for you. The Hebrews preacher is saying, if the law, that's what was delivered through angels, and again, I'll deal with that next week, proved reliable and God in it, and every crossing or transgression of the law received a just retribution, that word means payback, payment for sin, How in the world could anyone think they would escape if they neglect this great salvation, this good and awesome gospel of salvation in Christ? He's saying this this thing that we're part of now is so awesome and so great. How great will our punishment be if we neglect it? Now, neglect might seem like, oh, well, that's something really obvious, like you don't go to church for the rest of your life. Neglect, this word, what's being developed here, the word that I'm pointing to, the word that I see over and over again in connection with the problem of the Hebrews people is the word indifference. That's kind of cool. I like that. That's handy. Put it right here. Emphasize. Indifference. Indifference? Is that such a crime? The Hebrews preacher says it, says it is because this salvation is so great. Do not be indifferent. Do not neglect this salvation. What we're going to look at next week are some of the punishments or sanctions under the law. And we're going to introduce the notion that there are sanctions even graver ones under the new covenant or under the gospel or under this great salvation that we're part of. 
We're going to develop that next week. But I'm going to tell you right now, what led to this week's sermon is a confessed discomfort with the notion of sanctions or punishments under the new covenant or the great salvation or the gospel that we walk in. I was quite uncomfortable with that notion. I've been very, unco- very comfortable with the picture of sanctions under the old. You transgress God, and there will be payment. There are plenty of pictures of it in our Old Testaments. You don't have to read long or far to see that. He's holy, and sin is that corrosive, and it's easy to see in the Old Covenant and in our Old Testaments. Those are not the synonymous. What has been developed for me in the Old Testament is a clear picture of blessings and curses. What has not been developed for me... Well, let me, let me go back. What's been developed for me is a picture of blessings and curses in the Old Covenant as connected to performance. Now, that may be my baggage only. But I'm carrying some of my baggage up here this morning because it's been reckoned with this week. Looking at blessings and curses connected to performance seems more familiar to me in the Old Covenant. But I struggle with the notion of blessings and curses in the New Covenant because of my understanding is that poor performance is no longer relevant. See, there was a misunderstanding that performance drove things in the Old Covenant. So now there's a difficulty in connecting it to, to the new since Christ did the work. I think most of you would die on that hill with me, I hope. I think that's why, though, warning sermons are so difficult to preach and hear and heed and engage because it's easiest, easy for us to fall back on some what I'm going to call sugar stick teachings. They're sugar stick sermons that go along with them. Those sermons that every preacher loves to preach. Here's some of the sugar stick passages. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who doesn't love that passage? Let's say it again. I mean, I can say it again. You can enjoy it. There is therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Yeah. Man, we can say amen. That is a sugar stick truth. We love that, and we should. Here's another one. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Anybody like that? My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I love that verse. I hope we all do. Here's another Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This deal has been notarized. Man, I like those passages. And we should... Our problem, I don't think, is a mishandling of those passages. My fear is that they are overhandled. My fear is that they are overhandled at the expense of some other very important teachings. And the result is 
paradigms that are hard to break, that come down painfully. I have them, and I bet you have them. The result is that we can potentially approach passages, and instead of letting them speak, we filter them against our system or our paradigm, and we neuter them if they don't fit. We render them impotent. We don't let them speak. They're not authoritative because they don't fit our system. And we do that with our warning passages. Or we can potentially. And in fact, we likely do that with our warning passages. So we could come to passages like the many warnings of Hebrews and say, those are really empty threats. Because there's therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? That's you Hebrews writer. He's so dramatic. Or we could say, you know, those threats are not authoritative for me because I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit and the deal was notarized. I mean, the notary public was there. Better, the Holy Spirit sealed me. Or we could say, you know, this would be the worst crime of all right here is to say, you know, the Hebrews author, Hebrews writer, those sort of threats are dangers or warnings of drifting and things like that. Come on. Once saved, always saved. We're not even using scripture. We're not even using, using a sugar stick passage to render it impotent. We're using a quippy saying. Sorry, Hebrews writer. <laughs> Once saved, always saved, you silly rabbit. Seriously. I'm guilty of it. I would be surprised if all of you can't, I hope all of you can relate to this at times. We look at a passage and go, nah, surely he didn't mean that. That doesn't fit. The problem is when we do this, it leaves the Hebrews letter largely irrelevant and lacking authority in the life of the Christian. I'm telling you, I've been uncomfortable these last couple of weeks considering punishment and sanctions under the new covenant because my system says Christ took our punishment and God's wrath was meted out on him. Amen? That's a good system because that's true. But it doesn't take into account the punishments or sanctions of Hebrews, and many other places in our New Testaments within the new covenant, this great salvation, this great gospel that we walk in. As I've spent time this week dealing with this discomfort, I was led to take another look at the law. When I say law, in the strictest sense, it would include all of the first five books of the Old Testament, but in a real strict sense, I want to take us to the Mosaic Covenant. Turn to Exodus 19. I have, I think, the longest introduction in history. And you know what? I, I worked on it and tried to hone it down and cut it down. I just couldn't do it. I said, we need to engage every part of this before we really get to our sermon. I broke every law of preaching that I've encouraged every other preacher to not do. But it's for good reason. Because paradigms don't come down easily. Exodus chapter 19 is a, a chapter that's really, it's, it's, it's sort of a, 
foundational to the meaning of the rest of the law in the strictest sense. It's how we're to interpret at the, the tightest sense the Ten Commandments. In a larger sense, the rest of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. But in the tightest sense, at least in the, in the immediate context, it's dealing with how to understand the commandments. Listen to this passage starting in verse 2, halfway through verse 2. The nation of Israel has been led out of Egypt through the mighty acts of judgment. They've seen God's might through those plagues. They've seen God's power as he's parted the Red Sea and they've walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. At this point, they've eaten manna and quail. At this point, uh, Moses has struck the rock. Water pours out of it. They've had water to drink. And here they stand at the base of Sinai in chapter 19. It says, there Israel encamped before the mountain, that being Sinai, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him, or called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Let me summarize that. I got you out of Egypt, and you didn't have to lift a finger. If you want to say cooking a lamb is lifting a finger, I guess you could say you lifted a wee finger. But I did the work. I bore you on eagles' wings. I made you a people. I drew you out of Egypt. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you read that passage just by itself, you engage it alone. You don't engage context. You don't engage other passages. There's a great temptation of walking away and thinking that this covenant is a works covenant. Reading just that passage could leave you believing that this was a covenant of works and that God's pleasure on them or for them would be based on how they did in following his rules. Right? I mean, I hope everybody can see that. I bore you on eagle's wings. Now, go do what I told you to do. And if you do, I will be with you. You'll be my treasured possession among all peoples. Sounds like a very clear if-then. This week, though, I've had to consider that maybe the old covenant wasn't a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. Am I paradigm getting chipped a little bit? That it wasn't a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. Why I feel like this was necessary for me and why I believe that it's necessary for this people was because I don't think that, I think if we digest this, then we'll be better able to accommodate sanctions and punishments under the new covenant. I'm going to explain that a few different ways so you understand what I'm saying. My problem of discomfort in seeing curses and blessings in the new covenant stems from viewing the old covenant as a performance-driven covenant or covenant of works. That's my problem. 
If you view it as a covenant of works, then sanctions and punishments under that covenant make total sense. You transgress his law, and you're punished, period, as it says in Hebrews 2. Every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. You look at that and you go, yeah, no duh. But my paradigm says the new covenant is altogether different. It doesn't work even remotely in that way in my paradigm that's been disassembled this week. In my paradigm, transgressions and disobedience are forgiven and the sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Is that a familiar passage to anybody? I love that passage. In fact, I thought, yeah, man, that's, see, there you go. I'm going to go find that verse. You know, I, you know how when you have passage comes to mind, you don't know the address. I'm looking for it in Ephesians. Where the love of God, you not separate you. I'm thinking it's that in that area. That's actually an old covenant writing. It's in the book of Psalms. Psalms 103 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. If transgressions and disobediences are forgiven and the sins are removed as far as the east is from the west under the new covenant, then how could anyone be apostate? This thing that the Hebrews writer calls falling away from the faith. Paul uses the phrase actually falling from faith. It's another one of those examples we read and go, there's no real apostasy Hebrews writer being dramatic again. How could anyone take his warning seriously if transgressions and disobediences have no sanctions or punishments? And why even are there warnings? Is he just trying to get them to ship up? Shape up? Ship out? I don't know, but I forget how the phrase goes. He's just trying to get them to clean their noses and part their hair, so he's going to throw some warnings at them. What I found that I want to show you this morning is that this was a covenant of grace, after all. In order to understand the new covenant rightly, we need to go back and really understand the nature of the old. Was it a covenant of works? Was God's pleasure for the worshiper based on their performance and how they did? If his favor, you got to ask this next question. If his favor is based on how the worshiper does with the law, how would anyone be justified? Really? (laughs) I mean, let's be honest. How is anyone going to please God through the law. What we're going to see today is, I hope and pray, is we're going to see grace in God's law in the old covenant. If we see grace there, we'll be better able to see the character of some things associated with the law, like sanctions and punishments in God's great salvation in the gospel, 
in the new covenant. If we're to see the relationship of works and obedience to faith under the old covenant, then we'll be more prone to understand what James said when he said, you know what? Faith works. Faith works. We'll be better able to embrace the warnings and have a view to the sanctions of the new covenant while understanding his grace. It does no damage to his grace. We'll better understand what it means, where Paul said, to fall from grace. We'll better be able to accept what the Hebrews writer says that it's possible to crucify Christ all over again and to hold him to contempt. We'll better be able to understand that someone's deliberate, ongoing sin can eventually result in their no longer remaining a sacrifice for their sins, just like the Hebrews writer said. Or we may better be able to embrace and understand Christ's words that one who doesn't abide in him will be cut away and thrown into the fire and burned. My hope and prayer is for me and for this people is that our little study that we're doing this morning will put the potency back in these warning passages. The oomph, a healthy fear of the Lord. So, four things, four places, or not places, four things we're going to engage this morning. The first, see, that's a long intro. Y'all hang in there good. We hadn't gotten to the sermon yet, so that's letting you know. The old covenant, our law, I'm going to use those words interchangeably. The old covenant and the law wasn't a covenant of works. That's the first thing we're going to consider. Secondly, the law or the old covenant wasn't counter grace. Third, covenants weren't one-sided. And fourth, faith, if true, was and is never alone. Faith, if true, was and is never alone. So that's your kind of map, roadmap for the morning. Let's start with the old covenant or the law wasn't a covenant of works. If you're still in Exodus 19, stay there. If you're not, head on back to there. There were some pre-old covenant covenants. Doing a little teaching this morning along with this sermon. The first covenant is called the Adamic covenant. Eat from any tree in the garden, tend my garden, name my critters, take care of your woman. I mean, that's implied. And don't eat from that tree. That's the Adamic covenant. Now, as he's commanded not to eat from the tree of the knowledge and good, and good of evil, listen to this. He didn't somehow earn eternal life by following God's rules not to eat from that tree. You understand that? It's not a works-based salvation. He'll somehow earn eternal life by not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That would be an early version of a works-based covenant if that were true. Consider Noah. Noah didn't get the instructions for boat building because he was a dandy. I like that word. I just like to use every chance I get he, he wasn't a dandy. A lot of people think that he was. A lot of times when we teach our kids, we teach our kids that Noah was a dandy. 
That's why he got the instructions for the ark. He was a dandy. Listen to this passage. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor, that Hebrew word, means grace. Do you know grace showed up that early in in our Bibles? The Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, uses the word grace there. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then the next verse says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Well, I would encourage you to read that, is Noah found favor and grace in the eyes of the Lord. Therefore, he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. If you flipped those and said, you know, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, so he found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord, it wouldn't be favor, it would be the word merit. It wasn't a covenant of works. Even our early covenant right there was a covenant of grace. Abraham. Abraham's another example. The Abrahamic covenant... He was declared righteous by faith, not by works. That's the argument that Paul makes in Galatians 3. He was declared righteous by faith, not by being a good boy and clearing some hurdles. There is no merit salvation in our Bibles. Hear me. If you want to find merit salvation, look at any man-made religion. Be a good boy, and you'll be reincarnated or something. Be a good boy, you'll get to go live with Buddha. Be a good boy, this happens. Be a good boy, that happens. If you're good enough, this will happen to you. That's not in our Bibles. That's not our old covenant. It's not any of the old covenants. And it's not the old covenant. Turn to Exodus. Are you already at Exodus 19 because I had you be there? Listen, I'm going to read this passage in a new way. Same, same verses, but listen to what's being said here. There Israel encamped before the Lord while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God's saying, I delivered you. You didn't lift a finger. I did the work of... Salvation. It sounds like the salvation story. I did the work of salvation. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's being taught here comes into a little more focus in chapter 20. Listen to chapter 20, verse 2. This is almost like the first commandment. Most of us think the first commandment is, um, you shall have no other gods before me. Look at verse 2 as a commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's laying a foundation for all these other things that know and trust me as your deliverer. Because that's who I am. And then go obey the rest of these things I'm about to tell you. Know and trust that you didn't lift a finger. I delivered you from the mighty or the iron furnace of affliction is what Egypt is referred to elsewhere. I delivered you 
You are to trust me and to obey me. It's a great example of that old Baptist hymn, Trust and Obey. I bet some of y'all have been around a while. You know what I'm talking about. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Everybody's thinking that. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Y'all know it. That's an awesome song. It captures the essence of this old covenant. It's trust and obey. I, God, will be faithful to see this covenant through as you are faithful to trust me as your deliverer and obey me as your God. That's right. If you were to find obedience without trust, you would find empty worship that God abhorred. Hear what I just said. If you were to find obedience that's void of the trust, if you were just to find, oh, obey, oh, obey, here's what God would think of that. You can jot these passages down, or you can turn there. I'll give you a page number if you're in the ESV. Page 754 from Hosea. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I've hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, and there they dealt faithlessly with me. Show me works without faith. Show me even, we could call it, obedience without faith. And I'm going to show you an angry God. Here's another passage in Amos. In Amos, the nation of Israel was going up to Gilgal. And Bethel. And they're having these massive feasts and massive sacrifices for God. Man, it is full on serious worship. You might look at it and say, man, that is some good stuff right there. God is seriously being worshiped. Listen to what God has to say about what's going on. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The problem of the people at this point is they're going to Gilgal and Bethel and they're getting their worship on. They got sacrifices everywhere, but they're not tending to the poor. And God says, you know what? You're not trusting me. Get the stench of your offerings out of my nostrils. Get the noise of your cymbals out of my ears. Get the trampling of my courts out of my face. Because the covenant, properly understood, is trust and obey. Don't bring me faithless obedience. The flip side of that, if you found trust, now man, listen, Bunch of new, bunch of uh, contemporary Christians. You got to hear this. If you found trust without obedience, 
then it really wasn't trust at all. It was a farce. That's another word I like to say. The emphasis farce. Christy and I have some friends that have a personal trainer. They don't live here, in case you know, who's got a personal trainer? They live in Kerrville. And both doctors, I guess they can handle that personal trainer thing. But this guy, they told us a story. This guy is Hispanic, and he says, I just love the way he says things. Just really strong, manly, awesome dude. He speaks with a Hispanic accent, and he's asking, does it hurt? You know, when they're doing some, you know, 8,000 reps or something. And they're like, yeah, it hurts. He says, it's just a feeling. Pain is just a feeling. And that's what I'm thinking about when I see trust without obedience. I'm thinking it's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. And it's not true. Old covenant or new covenant. Old Testament or new testament. A little comment on the sacrificial system sort of a central part of the old covenant, central part of the law. Keeping the law in regards to the sacrificial system meant trusting God. You may remember a few years ago, we had a series of sermons that were the Passover series where we had Jacob going off to make his offering. This fictional guy that we imagined that he would go grab the unblemished lamb, not the one-eyed, three-legged one, but a really nice one, an unblemished one, and he'd march off to the tabernacle or temple, depending on when it was, to make his offering. And we just really climbed into that story, and we never really developed this then, but I'm seeing it in focus now, that if faithless, trudging Jacob were to go trudge off, even if he had a real shiny penny, even if he had a real beaut to offer, If he's faithless in that offering, he wouldn't leave forgiven. Now, granted, in that old system, it's temporary forgiveness. If you want to understand the big difference between the old covenant and new covenant, that's the biggest difference. Christ is offered and the the forgiveness is forever because the sacrifice is forever. But if Jacob went off faithless, trudging to the tabernacle, I guess I better go offer my, my sacrifice again. He would leave unforgiven if it was faithless. The sacrificial system engaged properly involved trusting God and his Redeemer to come. That's the way the sacrificial system was to be handled. That Jacob left forgiven, albeit temporary. What I want you to see and understand is there aren't two ways of gaining eternal life. There was not a, pre, a pre-Christ works way and then now a faith post-Christ way. It's always been faith. There's only ever been one way, and it's by faith. Okay, y'all doing good. Second thing we're going to consider is the law or the old covenant wasn't counter grace. Okay, roll our sleeves up. The law... And the old covenant wasn't counter grace. If you know your Bibles, you know that there are passages where they are pitted sort of against each other. Paul is the guy that really handles this the most. Book of Galatians is a great example. Where it looks like law is on one end and grace is on the other end like it's a seesaw. If you have much grace, you have no law. If you have much law, you have no grace. That's sort of the the flavor of the passage. 
Now, it should be read contextually, realizing that he's dealing with guys that are trusting in the law to save them. Go get circumcised, and you'll be saved. He's dealing with a problem, so he's presenting the law, at least the negative portions of it, or the derogatory handling in some ways, not to discount the entire law, because this is the same Paul that said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But it's a commandment, and it'll go well with you. He's not anti-law. There's the thought, though, that law and grace are at opposite ends. If true worshipers in the Old Covenant and the earlier covenants participated by faith, then how should we view the law? As we imagine, Jacob. Was it simply a mean taskmaster? Was it simply an exacting measure there just to tell us how sorry we are and how bad we need Jesus? Now, the irony here is you've heard that from me from a lot, for a long time. And I don't take that back because that's true. It certainly has done that. It is a tutor that leads us to Christ. But is that it? Were they just 1,500 years worth of flannel graph? Did Jacob's faith really not even matter? Was it just nothing? Was it just example for us? Or was there something actually going on there? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is, man, this is eye-opening right here. Deuteronomy chapter 4. The book of Deuteronomy is written as they're about to enter the promised land. Moses is on Nebo. He's sort of re-recording some things, but he's also presenting some, some new things to prepare the people to go on into the promised land across the Jordan and go on in with Joshua and Caleb at the lead. And listen to what he says in chapter 4, or verse 5 of chapter 4. I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. Just say, insert law. I've taught you law that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep these things and do these things, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding, look, in the sight of the peoples. There's all kind of ites living in the promised land. Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites. I throw some other ites in there. Parasites. I mean, all kind of ites. We could imagine living up in there. Ites everywhere. He's saying the ites are going to be watching as you do this law that I've given you. And when they hear all these statutes, they will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation in the wide world is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? This is a this this thought's out there. Here in this context? He's saying, guess what? When you go into the promised land, the law is going to be good news. Does that sit a little funny with you? The law is going to be your good news. The law is going to be your good news as you go. 
the thing that struck me is realizing that, wait a second, if the law has some good news in it, then maybe the good news has some bad news in it. Y'all know the passage we've engaged a million times, 2 Corinthians? To some, this thing will be an aroma of life to life. Good news. But to many, if we synthesize some other passages with it, it will be the aroma of death. Just as the good news has some bad news in it for some, the law had some good news in it. Turn to Psalm 119. Reading Psalm 119 with a new set of eyes is really pretty cool. Trying to understand, really, a psalm that's written about the law. Listen to some of the things that are said in this psalm that go along with the law. Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. What is the word right there? The word is the law. Deal bountifully so that I may live and keep your word. Verse 20. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all time. Anybody ever read that and gone, man, that's kind of creepy. I don't like rules. He's, he must have been weird. The next one, verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Verse 29. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach. Graciously teach me your law. Verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. That's a great picture of the order of March there. You enlarge my heart and soften me toward obedience toward you. I'm going to run in the way of your commandments. Commandments? Here again, he must be weird. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways. That's what the law is. It's giving us insight into his ways. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. You ever seen life connected to precepts? Verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Verse 64, The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Love and statutes going together? Show me a parent that has no statutes for their children, and I'll show you a parent that really doesn't love their child at all. Law isn't a dirty word. Verse 77. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Just as life and law are connected for this psalmist, ignoring this law means perishing. 
Look at verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet. What do you think the word is? It's the law. It's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 116. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hope and statute and law going in the same psalm? What in the world? Other passages, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. 149, hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. 154, plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation's far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Verse 166, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. Hope and salvation and commandments in the same verse. In the last one, verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Listen to David's words about the law. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. What? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Does it sound like the law contains nothing of God's grace to the psalmist? To think grace didn't show up until a starry night in Bethlehem is to make very little of our God before Christ showed up. He wasn't mean before Christ and happy now. He's always been graceful. And the law was a covenant of grace. This one guy that I read pretty thoroughly in preparing for this Sunday was a man named Andrew Sandlin. I like this quote from him. He said, the law is not just a pre-conversion message to go the sinner to go look elsewhere for salvation. Does it do that? Yeah. (laughs) It better. But that's not all it is. There was a life-giving element to it, and it wasn't counter grace. Now, The third thing, covenants weren't one-sided. Covenants, both old and new, included bilateral adherence. Went to a wedding last night. David and Crystal, David Lee and Crystal. I was about to say Crystal Lee. David and Crystal Lee. It's a a new combination. (laughs) David Lee and Crystal were married last night, and we were there witnessing a covenant taking place. And they go through their vows and they pray and. Steve asks them, you know, if they take each other's hand and they commit to these vows, and what's the word that they exchange? They both say, I do. David Lee didn't wholeheartedly say, I do. And then Krista say, well, I might. She said wholeheartedly, I do. Covenants involve bilateral involvement, bilateral adherence. And God was involved in that covenant too. If you want to think about it in terms of salvation, what did God do? What God has joined together, let no man separate. God delivered them, boarded them up on eagle's wings so that they stood together yesterday and said, I do, I do. I promise to be faithful to you. 
I promise to obey my covenant and my vows. There are no unconditional covenants in our Bible. Can I say that? Anybody really know their Bible? Go, ooh, it's kind of hard to hear. There are no unconditional covenants in our Bible. If Adam obeyed, he was blessed. If he disobeyed, he's what? Cursed, right? We're living in it. If Noah obeyed, he was blessed. If not, he went for a long swim along with the rest of his family. If Abraham obeyed, he was blessed. If he didn't, if he stayed in Ur of the Chaldeans, he would be judged as a pagan moon worshiper. Covenants involve bilateral adherence. If Israel trusted and obeyed, here trusted and obeyed, she would be blessed. And if not, she would be cursed exiled, destroyed, held captive, among other things. There are no covenants that say, I'll do this no matter what you do. God didn't say, I do, and the rest of us say, well, I might. Look at the Exodus, Exodus 19 response. We will do what you have said. The old covenant and new covenant were not different in character. Both call for covenant faithfulness. Both call for bilateral adherence. Here's a weird question for you. Just to consider. Is obedience a requirement for salvation? I asked a few people that this morning when they're in the office, and I got to look like, you want me to answer that? Uh, is this a trick question? Am I being recorded or videotaped to use as an illustration? Hey, you can run that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a hard question. I mean, seriously, think about it. Is obedience necessary or a requirement for God to hold up his end of the deal? Now, I was talking with Greg Fields last night, and he was kind of using this phrase, this terminology that I really liked, small s salvation and big s salvation. Small s salvation is where most of us live in our context. I'm not talking about y'all necessarily, but what I fear, most people that say, man, yeah, I got saved. Uh, when was that? Uh, years ago, and I remember that. Okay, what church are you part of? Oh, man, I don't, I'm not part of a church. Are you walking with the Word? Are you walking with God's people? No, man, I was saved. I'm good. That small s salvation where most people live is justification alone. If we qualified the question and said, is small s salvation are small s obedience necessary for salvation? I hope that every person in this room would say, you know what? My salvation is not based on my obedience. It's based on his obedience. He was the one that fulfilled the law. He was the one that was perfectly obedient. I wear his righteousness, right? In small s salvation, God did the work. God, God the son was obedient. Yes, celebrate it. But I'm asking the question in regards to big s salvation. 
justification, sanctification, glorification, this lifelong journey of faith that you are on, do you think there's some option that doesn't involve obedience? Seriously, think about it. Is there a, is there a sanctification that doesn't involve obedience? I mean, aren't those sort of synonymous? How could someone be about the work of being sanctified for their glorification, yet not obeying God? It would be changing the song again altogether. Trust and trust some more. For there's no other way. Let's just trust and trust some more. It's trust and obey. They go together. Old covenant, new covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. The way God worked a long time ago and the way God works now. Hopefully you can see that and not say, oh, you're talking about a works-based salvation because you're realizing there's no such thing. The old covenant wasn't a works-based salvation. Nor is the new. It will always be driven by faith. Sanctification and obedience go together. What is sanctification without obedience? It's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. Lastly, Faith, if true, was, and I'm going to say is, never alone. Turn to Galatians 3. And you can also put a finger in James 2. We're getting close to the end of the sermon, so those grandparents are like, man, what did I get signed up for? Why do they do child dedication on this Sunday? Well, that's God's sovereignty. We'll just say that it was his plan. Galatians 6. I love how he works out the schedule. Page 973 of your ESV. It says, As Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, he's declared righteous by faith, not by works. I hope you see that. You could say, As Abraham faithed, God, as Abraham trusted God, as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him, or reckoned to him, or credited, I added a new syllable in that, credited it to him as righteousness. Now look at James chapter 2. I'll throw a wrench in this a little bit. James chapter 2, page 1012. Was not Abraham our father justified by Martin Luther hated the book of James. In fact, he called it a right strawy epistle because of things like this. This is a difficult thing. Look what it says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And then a couple verses later, thankfully we hear, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. While one verse is completely true, it doesn't reveal the truth completely. Galatians chapter 3 verse 6 is completely true, but it doesn't reveal the truth completely. You go to some other satellites and you go, okay, that rounds it out. That helps me appreciate what's being said about Abraham's faith. 
What's being said about Abraham's faith is that Abraham's faith works. His faith was never alone. It was always accompanied by obedience, by works. He wasn't saved by it. It was characteristic of his faith because there's no other kind of faith. If it's faith without obedience, remember what it is? It's just a feeling. Abraham was saved solely by God's grace, by faith alone, but the faith by which he was alone justified is never alone. His faith worked. The last passage I'm going to have you turn to is in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, page 1007 of your pew Bible. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's not a pew Bible now. It's an ESV if you brought with you. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. See, it was never a works thing. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Every one of these people that you look at has a verb associated with their faith. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Enoch pleased. By faith, Noah constructed. By faith, Abraham obeyed. You can go through the entire chapter and you see some verbs associated with every single one of their faiths. If that, there is a plural, faiths. Faith works. Had someone suggested to the Hebrews writer that obedience was the result of their faith, this is how inextricably they're linked. And that's based on what we've seen in our, in our old covenants, if we see it rightly. Had someone suggested to the Hebrews writer, well, um, it's very obvious that their works uh, resulted from their faith, he likely would have looked at you like an old cow at a new gate. He likely, it makes me laugh to think about this, he likely would have looked at you like your dog does sometimes when you do something stupid. Those of you that have a dog, you know what I'm talking about? Where you do something stupid, you make a funny noise or... If any of you ever done this, I've never done this, so I wouldn't know what it's like. But if you kind of dance like in front of your dog and he's never seen you dance before and they turn their head to the side like this. What? What? <laughs> the Hebrews writer, it would be unfathomable for the verbs to be separated from the faith. Work and faith are that inextricably linked. Were Noah not to build an ark, Noah would not be saved. Were Abraham not to obey, he would not be made a great nation of. Faith works. And at the same time, men are not saved by their, by their performance. The way we walk in covenant now, as the way they walked in covenant then, was by what Paul referred to as the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Of faith. 
Looking at faith and obedience separately destroys both. They shouldn't be divided. The gospel is not only a message to be believed, but a command to be obeyed. Hear that? Small s doesn't like that. Big S says, well, yeah. Small S says, no. That second part's optional. Big S says, yeah. Our Hebrews writer that we're neck deep in the middle of right now that we will likely be in for years is saying in Hebrews chapter 2, and he's going to develop throughout his whole book that faith hears Faith heeds. Faith holds fast. Faith and indifference are incompatible. They don't even go together. Faith obeys. And if it doesn't, then what we're talking about is a severed covenantal relationship. My hope and prayer today was that we could see faith and grace in the old covenant. Working, moving, Engaging, doing, obeying faith in the old covenant so that we can see it in the new and understand what's being warned. So that we can better be able to see sanctions and punishments in the new. This story of the gospel isn't part A and B. It is in part one and two. We have two sections to our Bible, but that sort of does an injustice to the reality. It's not God was grumpy over here and God's happy over here. Jesus made him happy. It's one big cloth. And this big cloth has been unfolding for thousands of years. And it's all a story of God's grace. If you see it that way, then you can import some of these tremblings some of the healthy fear of the Lord into our new covenant environment. We can let those sanctions invade our Tuesday. We can let those sanctions invade our weekly worship attendance. Yes, even that. Well, I go to church sometimes. You can let a sanction like that go, whoa, wait a second. If I don't hear and heed the story of the person and work of Christ, then I may drift. In fact, drifting is likely. That's what I'm saying. It finds purchase right here. These sort of realities are so supposed to inform our Tuesday. They're lived out in the dailiness of life where you're getting up on a Sunday morning and you say, man, I'm tired. Mm. Covenant faithfulness is lived out in that moment where you go, you know what? I've got to get up. Because I've got to hear and heed a word from my living God. I've got to get up to go enjoy the fellowship of God's people. I've got to get up to go take the supper. Covenant faithfulness is lived out in the routine, in the mundane. These sort of realities have to invade even the things that seem small and insignificant. Especially the things that seem small and insignificant. I'm betting that there's going to be some questions. I hope, I hope there are going to be some questions. Some things that you process, some things that you want to explore some more. 
We'll walk through it. Hebrews is going to round out a lot of the things that we've engaged today. The whole book. It'll be born out over months and years until the Lord comes back. So don't try and feel like you've got to have all the answers right this minute. But don't be afraid of asking questions. It's not an insult to ask the preacher, now what did you mean there? Or to ask your small group shepherd, what did he mean there? Please do that. That's how these truths find a home. Let me pray. God, I am personally thankful and I'm hoping that there are others that can join me in this prayer. I'm thankful for seeing your grace in the rest of the story. And I'm thankful too for seeing covenant faithfulness in the old part of the story and now understanding the expectation of it in the new Lord, I pray that you will guard our hearts from ever thinking for a moment that we can ever do anything to earn our salvation. And in the same breath, Lord, I pray that you will find our faith being lived out with daily doing. On that Sunday morning when you're tired. On that Tuesday when you're thinking, man, I don't want to read to my kids who aren't paying attention. Lord, I pray that covenant faithfulness will find purchase in the dailiness of life and in the routine and the mundane and that by your grace and mercy, you will work within a bunch of ordinary people and extraordinary daily faithfulness. I'm thankful to see you at work in the whole story. I'm thankful to see that you've always been graceful and good and loving and merciful and just and that you are now, that you've always been a consuming fire and you've always been love. Lord, I pray for a result of today's sermon that we'll have some synthesis to the story. It will impact the way we live and love. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.